0: There's been a terrible spate of violence against Asian-Americans in recent months. And I want you to know, I talked with UCLA's Margaret Shee before the most recent atrocity in Atlanta. So instead of focusing on violence at that moment, we talked about related issues she deals with as vice chancellor for UCLA's Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. They include systemic racism in workplaces and the stereotyping of racial minorities and women. Hello again, I'm Aaron Alney, and this is How the World Works, a podcast from UCLA Anderson. So it's time to talk to Professor Margaret Shee. Professor Shee, great to have you with us.
1: Thank you for inviting me. I'm really honored to be here.
0: Well, we're honored to have you. Your research has turned up a lot of surprising insights about workplace relationships and how to deal with implicit bias, not just with individuals, but also on a systemic bias. And you've come up with some important challenges for corporations and other organizations, and we want to hear about that. But first... Something our listeners probably aren't expecting, your account as a person from Canada about the idea of Asian Americans. What did you think when you first heard that term?
1: Okay, so um, I grew up in Canada, and when I first arrived in the United States for college, I found out that I was an Asian American. And I had to confess that at that point, I really didn't know what an Asian American was. Because growing up in Canada, there was no such thing really as an Asian Canadians. Uh, Canada has sort of a multicultural policy, where people immigrate from the countries and they become a community. For example, I'm Taiwanese Canadian, and there would be Japanese Canadians and Chinese Canadians. But we never really thought of ourselves as Asian Canadians. And so when I came to the United States and people said you were Asian American, it took me a while to realize that Asian American is a group and it's because the U.S. is so racialized and that it's a political identity that brings, it's like a coalition of people who have ancestry in Asia. And so it was a, an eye-opening experience For me to realize that um, groups in different countries around the world are separated differently, are categorized differently, and that the history of the, the country that you're in makes a difference in how people categorize. And so I realized that groups are very much social constructions.
0: It would be like saying American and meaning everybody in North America, South America, Central America, despite all the differences that we have. As you say, it's a social construct.
1: Yes, exactly. That's right. Yeah. Because Asia is huge. I mean, within the category of Asian American, you can disaggregate it and it's an incredibly varied group. And so it would be similar, like saying all of Americans, including Latin America, North America, South America, or Central America are in one group.
0: So is it insulting to be called an Asian American?
1: No, I think Asian American is a political identity, and I think to push for changes or to have any sort of political weight, you need to have coalitions. But I think at the same time, it's important to recognize that it's not a monolithic group. It's it's incredibly varied, just like Europe is incredibly varied, Africa is incredibly varied, and not homogenizing the group.
0: The homogenization uh, and the stereotyping has some pretty ugly consequences when somebody gets attacked because it is thought that they are a Chinese and consequently in some way f- responsible for the virus when in fact they're North Korean or South Korean or uh, it's the inaccuracy of the stereotype has a violent consequences.
1: Yes, no, there's a lot of research that shows that stereotyping, even positive stereotypes or stereotypes that don't even have a valence that's neither positive or neutral can lead to a lot of negative harmful consequences. So, for example, for Asian Americans, there's a lot of work on the model minority stereotype. There's a model minority stereotype is supposedly supposed to be flattering, you know, on the surface because it's supposed to be complimentary. So, if people might say, "Oh, Asians are so hardworking or Asians are very good at math. But um, even those kinds of stereotypes that are supposedly complementary uh, lead to um, uh, harmful consequences. For example, uh, if you uh, make people aware that they're Asian and that they're expected to do well at math, that actually harms their performance on a math test. There's work that shows the model minority stereotypes tend to make people overlook Asian Americans who might need help, who are struggling. They often use Asian-Americans to hold them as a standard for other groups saying, oh, our system works. Look, Asian-Americans have a lot of social mobility, which is not necessarily the case. There are a lot of Asian-American groups that don't have a lot of social mobility and are struggling. And yeah, even complementary stereotypes can have harmful consequences.
0: Well, thank you for being willing to talk about that. I think it's fascinating. And uh, we don't hear enough about it. And it's uh, one of the things that people are living with that the rest of us ought to be very much aware of, it seems to me. So uh, we appreciate. So let's turn to the workplace and what you've learned about what is essentially uh, two sides of the same coin, the negative experiences that employees encounter having to do with race and the positive experiences that they don't encounter. Uh, Tell us about your research in that regard.
1: Yeah, so I have been thinking about the differences in experiences that minorities and women um, and other underrepresented groups have in organizations when you compare them to the experiences of, say, white men in groups. And there's been a lot of work focusing on all of the hurdles and barriers that women and minorities face and all of the negative experiences they encounter. So, for example, issues like microaggressions or marginalization or discrimination or harassment. But I realized that that only explains half of their experience in organizations, there's this other half that has not gotten as much attention. And it's basically what are all the things that they're not experiencing? So uh, things such as mentoring or social support or finding role models within the organization that they can relate to. And those kinds of experiences we found actually predict just as much what they're not experiencing. The positive experiences that they're missing out on predict turnover, for example intention to leave an organization just as highly, if not higher, than all of the negative experiences that they're encountering.
0: Higher even than the negative. How do you explain that? What's the theory behind it?
1: Well, I think when people think about whether or not they want to stay, they do some calculations in their mind, right? So they will weigh all the reasons they have to want to leave against the reasons that they have to want to stay. And when you have a lot of negative experiences, you have a lot of reasons to want to leave. And if you have very few positive experiences, you have very few reasons to stay to counterbalance that. And so when you do that calculation, it usually will work out on the side that it makes sense to leave. Whereas, for example, someone who comes into an organization and people are always knocking on their door and saying hi and greeting them. People will offer help to them all the time. People will smile at them frequently or they're given very high profile glamorous assignments they'll have a lot of reasons to stay and if they never experience harassment or they never experience microaggressions they'll have very few reasons to leave and then if you do that calculation then it always sort of weighs on the side of staying
0: it sort of goes back to that question uh, too that you raised earlier about the positive stereotypes the model a minority i suppose you'd be less likely to get the positive reinforcement the mentoring the uh, helping out that uh, you described earlier if people thought about you in that way
1: right you'd be more likely to fall between the cracks they might be less likely to see you as an individual so for example if you go into high school and you're asian american people might encourage you to take the science classes the math classes but not invite you to join the basketball team and so that often also closes doors for you
0: So we're talking about the positive experiences that people do not encounter, as opposed to the negative ones they do. Can you put a number on which is worse?
1: I would say they're really different. Negative experiences are really easy to regulate because they're very obvious. If somebody calls you by an offensive name, if somebody yells at you, It's very observable and you can legislate against it, right? So you can create rules or policies against it. Not doing something positive, that's a lot harder because positive behaviors are voluntary, right? So if someone doesn't smile at you, you can't actually legislate that. And so they're much less obvious. And so I think it's hard to compare one versus the other because at the core, they're just very different types of experiences and there's sort of different social norms surrounding them. But we did do a study on withdrawal intentions in the general social survey. And we've found that missing out on positive experiences predicts about 10 to 15% of the variance in people's intentions to leave an organization.
0: So that's a high number and something then that uh, you can use. Yes. So what can corporations and other organizations do to overcome the negative impact of not having positive experiences?
1: It predicts a significant amount of the variants. So I would say making sure, for example, that uh, you include all people when you have events or when there are new opportunities that come out. It's not just by word of mouth that you let people know about these new opportunities, but there are systematic ways to advertise these new opportunities for people. Paying attention to how you assign tasks to people, making sure that everybody gets an opportunity to do those glamorous tasks. You're not just giving the glamorous tasks to a certain number of people and what we call housework tasks like scheduling or organizing, um, you also spread those types of tasks out. Um, Paying attention to whose voice you listen to in the organization. Um, The boss only has ears open to everybody and not only a couple of people. Those types of inclusive practices will make a difference, but it has to be very intentional because you just can't legislate positive behaviors.
0: So do managers need training in this?
1: Yes, I think raising awareness when people become aware of these things, um, they're much more intentional, I think it would make a difference.
0: So you can't punish anybody for not smiling or not greeting, but when it comes to negative experiences, speaking out, for example, calling somebody a name or things of that kind, you can punish for, is that important to do? Should managers call people out? Should other people in the workforce Call people out when they see that kind of discriminatory action?
1: Uh, Yes. So there is work that says confronting bias can have positive consequences. A lot of times, when uh, poor behavior or sexist or racist statements go unchallenged, people read into that an implicit support of those kinds of statements. And so when they go unchallenged, it creates a negative atmosphere, a negative climate. And so calling them out is important. And there's also work that shows calling out a statement that might be racist, for example, um, will also improve attitudes and behaviors towards other groups as well. So it will make people actually less sexist, um, not just less racist, uh, maybe less ageist. And so it has a generalizing effect. I think the difficult part is figuring out how to do the calling out and being able to do that on the spot.
0: Yeah, isn't there often a lot of backlash? People's racial bias is deep and uh, sometimes they're really committed to it.
1: Yes, and a lot of times in the work people often think of bias as simply explicit. They're not aware of the implicit biases that is around us. Although there's I think there's been a general awakening most recently about sort of implicit processes and how bias is so often just baked automatically and naturally into the environment. And so I think there is greater awareness of that and vigilance towards it now. But in many cases, it goes by unnoticed.
0: What about the role of uh, public officials in public affairs and what people see uh, in uh, public? How important is that to creating stereotypes and sustaining them? I suppose it's easy to talk about the recent president. Uh, let's talk in more general terms than that. How's the environment Uh, right now, do you think?
1: So, I think now there has been a raised awareness about social injustices, and there's been also a greater interest and um, knowledge about where there are imbalances. And For example, in Hollywood, there's greater attention paid to representation and making sure that people can see themselves on TV and that kids can see themselves reflected in the shows and the stories that are told. And I think that that is a good step because that's an awareness that people didn't have before. So for example, When I was growing up, the TV shows I watched were Brady Bunch, Gilligan's Island. I never really saw an Asian American on TV. My children now are growing up with Dora the Explorer, Nihal Kailan, Doc McStuffins. It's much more diverse in terms of the role models and the people that they're exposed to. And that makes a big difference in terms of the implicit associations that people develop and how the associations might affect their attitudes and their beliefs and their
0: behaviors. Going back to what we first discussed, a couple of times you've used the term Asian-American. So you do find it a useful uh, term in terms of talking about uh, categories of people and the way they're presented in the United States.
1: Oh, yeah. No, I very much learned uh, the United States and sort of the social landscape in the States. I've lived here about 30 years now, and all my research has been conducted in the U.S. Yeah, you have to use the terms that people understand.
0: (laughs) Sure. But how do you look at it yourself when you see somebody on television that somebody else might think of as an Asian American? Do you see somebody who's Chinese or South Korean or Taiwanese? Or do you make those distinctions yourself?
1: Um, Yeah, I see all of it. Like if you have an anchor, I'll see someone who's Asian American. If their last name is distinctive, I might also be able to Sort of infer their ethnicity, um, but what I see may not be how they identify themselves as well. So I still try to hold assumptions at bay because sometimes the way you categorize someone may not reflect how they really identify themselves. So that's something that I've learned a lot from doing my work on multiracial identity. Um, oftentimes, multiracial individuals are miscategorized, and how people categorize them may not reflect the way they see themselves. And that disparity often can also have consequences on their mental well-being.
0: How do you mean that? How are multiracial people miscategorized?
1: So, for example, someone who may be black, white, and Asian mixed, right, but grew up mainly in the Asian context. So they grew up culturally Asian, but people might categorize them as black, but that might not be how they think of themselves because they grew up culturally Asian.
0: That's really interesting. So uh, identity is so important. When people grow up perceived by others, at least as Asian Americans, as opposed to being Chinese Americans, what does that do to their ideas of their own cultural background and inheritance?
1: I think it would vary by, again, each person. Um, There's work that shows that there are individual differences in how people navigate bicultural identities. So some People may identify themselves mainly as Asian American. Some may identify themselves as mainly Chinese. Some may identify themselves as Chinese Americans. Some may identify themselves as American and distance themselves from their ethnic identity. It varies a lot. There's an individual difference variable that they call the BII, which is the Bicultural Identity Integration. And it shows that uh, individuals will vary and how they integrate different parts of their cultural identity. Some are very fluid, and they, they don't see the different cultural identities as conflictual, whereas others will see them as very conflictual. And it affects how they navigate their social world in terms of how they frame or code switch, how they interpret events that happen. So I think it, it varies a lot by the individual.
0: Uh, There are a lot of people who talk about the United States as the great melting pot, where uh, people are judged, as Dr. King would have had it, by the color of their character rather than the color of their skin. How close do you think we are to that?
1: America likes to think of itself as a melting pot, and in some ways there is a lot of fusion. There's still a lot of segregation uh, by where people live, by SES, um, physical environments, There are a lot of spots where there is integration as well. People are working towards it, I think, trying to figure out how to do it well.
0: So we've gotten a long way from your research, and I'm just fascinated with your observations of a more general nature. But tell us, what is the most important research that you have been doing in addition to what we've already discussed, that difference between negative experience and the lack of positive experience?
1: The most important takeaway is that when we start developing diversity initiatives, it needs to be comprehensive for the initiatives to make any difference. You have to not only address Reducing negative experiences, the discrimination, the harassment, but you also at the same time need to improve and increase access to positive experiences. So while you're reducing discrimination, you also need to create access to mentoring or create access to encouragement and social support. And I think if you could do all of that, I think you would have a very effective way of creating a more sort of equitable and diverse organization.
0: So that's from the administrative point of view, the corporate point of view. What about the individual point of view? And what do you think people should be thinking about uh, who are not, for example, uh, Asian? How should they treat their fellow employees to make them more comfortable?
1: I say push yourself and be much more vigilant about what you do and also what you don't do. Who you say hi to in the mornings, who you seek out, but try to seek out people that you might not have thought of seeking out before and who you offer aid to if you decide you want to help. Who else are you not helping? When you greet somebody, who are the people you're greeting, but who are the people that you don't greet and sort of being cognizant of that.
0: So I take it then that you're happy to see what we've referred to as an awakening, rather than seeing it as a uh, kind of consciousness that encourages people to see each other's differences rather than their similarities. I think
1: there's been a lot of focus on similarities, and people don't quite know what to do about differences I think a lot of the key is what to do about differences, how to value them, how to feel comfortable with them or being comfortable with being uncomfortable, how to handle differences. I think that once we know how to do that well, I think that could be the key to improving intergroup relations.
0: So you're not just a professor, but also associate vice chancellor uh, for diversity, equity and inclusion. Are you working on ways of putting all this down in such a way that uh, employers and others can be more conscious, according to what you've discovered in your research?
1: I mean, there's been a lot of work in our equity office on The negative part, sort of improving procedures and accountability. The part that I work on now is the positive part the prevention, the inclusion, and trying to figure out empirically validated methods that help the universities become more diverse, become more inclusive, and equitable. So we're looking at practices that the school has, evaluating that, and testing out different interventions that some researchers have found have worked and wanting to see if that works at UCLA.
0: Beyond the campus and beyond the university, do you expect there to be resistance to the kind of thing that you're talking about from managers, or are they looking forward to uh, hearing more about the kind of thing you're talking about?
1: For any kind of diversity initiative, there's always going to be pushback with regards to why and how from a subset of people. But for the most parts, I think most managers want to make their workplaces more equitable, inclusive, and diverse. Um, But they just need to figure out how to do it.
0: Is it a good idea? Would you encourage people to sort of tally up the experiences that they have when they're deciding whether they want to stay someplace? Is that a healthy thing to do?
1: It depends on what kind of experience. If it's an experience that you have no control over, for example, people smiling at you, you can't make people smile at you, and you notice that people smile at you less than they do your office mate. It might make you feel resentful because you have no control over whether people smile at you or not. However, if it's something that's controllable, for example, you're noticing that there are opportunities that you weren't aware of and then you can actually go out and find where those opportunities are, then those things are good to keep track of because then you know that you need to take that extra step to find where you can access those opportunities.
0: Okay. Well, uh, good luck with your efforts, because it seems to me they're just extraordinarily important. And it's wonderful to talk with you. Again, Professor Margaret Chi, is a professor at UCLA, also Vice Chancellor of the Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. Many thanks.
1: Thank you, Lauren. It was great to talk to you.
0: I'm Lauren Alney. This has been How the World Works from UCLA Anderson. Thanks for joining us.